Welcome back to Finding the Edge podcast. I'm Brock Hammett, and with me as always is my co-host Garrett Boyum. And today, joined with us on this episode is Phil Sibahar, and he's a good friend of mine. I've known him for, what, four years now? Um, and he's at he's on staff at the University of Arkansas. So, Phil, how are you doing? Doing good, man. How are you guys? We're doing all right. Uh, yeah, just grinding out some pod episodes, talking about hitting two of our favorite things. I love it. So, good time of the year for it. Yeah, no better time of the year for it. Uh, it's getting cold out, so that's when we like to go to work, pull up our roll up our sleeves. And, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I'll, uh, Phil. I'll just we're gonna get straight into it, and we'll just kind of see what kind of conversations emerge from me asking you a few questions, and we'll just go from there. Sounds good. So, and. I'll just allow you, go ahead and give us a quick intro about yourself, uh, your background in baseball, uh, and kind of just your story up until now, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd say my background's probably like most coaches. Uh, you know, you grow up playing the game, happen to be around the game probably more than other kids at my given age, um, given some of my circumstances. Um, you know, the first person I'd have to credit my baseball playing career to and now my coaching career would be my dad, a uh, former professional pitcher. He really handled the game for me and uh, presented a lot of great opportunities for me to enjoy the game rather than just play it. So I'm really thankful for him and the, the bringing I had in there. And uh, to say my playing career was lucrative would be a lie. Uh, it kind of spanned over three different colleges. So uh, I bounced around following high school. Uh, I attended Bossier Parish Junior College in Bossier City, Louisiana, uh, for a year and a half, and then went over to Lawson State Junior College in Birmingham, Alabama, for a semester to finally finish in my undergrad at the University of Arkansas, Fort Smith, uh, for two years. I think I finished with around 60 official college at-bats over three different schools, so again, not very lucrative. Um, I was probably the player that was uh, uncoachable at times, always trying things out and researching anything that happened to relate to baseball. So with that being said, I'm really thankful for the coaches that endured me during uh, each of those stops because uh, there's a lot of stuff that I tried and a lot of stuff I failed at. Um, my playing career was you know, kind of during the peak of what I guess was now dubbed uh, hitting Twitter. Uh, so I was able to find a lot of content. Um, meet some amazing people throughout the process, just trying to get myself better. Uh, during all this, I had the opportunity to coach with a uh, high school summer organization in between my semesters in college. And it was a really unique situation, uh, coaching ambitious high school players wanting to move on into college when I was only two to three years older than some of them at the time. It was a great opportunity to learn uh, how players are receptive to some coaching styles and how to relate to individuals as humans rather than players, uh, given the age separation between us. Once my last year got done of playing in May of 2018, I began the full coaching pursuit and started in the fall of 2018 at the University of Arkansas. In between last season and the start of this fall, I had the privilege to work for the Cleveland Indians in the Dominican Republic and uh, the DSL. Spending a summer down in the Dominican was a phenomenal experience and really brought in my perspective on life and baseball and something that I will really cherish over my coaching career. 
And that kind of brings us uh, to where we're at right now. Currently back at the University of Arkansas, finishing up my graduate work and uh, getting ready for the 2020 spring season. Awesome. Well, go ahead and just kind of talk about your experience. Um, I, I would say let's just start with, with Cleveland and then um, just tell us about what it was like to to work with the Indians and in the Dominican where there was a bit of a, a language barrier. So just kind of tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, definitely. I think the first thing to say about Cleveland is is uh, the first class organization that they are and the the focus that they have for their for their individuals, their players and their staff within their system. Um, so it's really unique getting to learn the, the pillars and the dynamics of their um, of their system and how they view player development. Um, so with my experience down there, I was a, I was a minor league coach, uh, for the summer, just kind of spanning over three different teams that we had down at the complex. Uh, we had our DSL team, we had a co-op team with the, the Milwaukee Brewers, and then we had our tricky league team and kind of spanning over those three different, um, three different teams. I think we had close to 65 players on site, um, given more, give or take given at the time. Uh, so it gave me a unique opportunity to really dive in first and foremost and um, trying to implement technology down there uh, with some guys that, you know, these Dominican Dominican players have never seen machines before. For example, um, they've never had the experience with machines. And so let alone having a bat sensor on their bat or having a rap soda on the floor was groundbreaking to some of them. And so implementing that slowly but surely and trying to educate those kids was probably the biggest challenge and biggest hurdle that, um, you know, I had to make. And along with that, having that language barrier, um, it was very subtle and very slow. And really, you had to be very specific with your words and uh, really made a difference whenever you were able to describe something in a small manner and hopefully get a result that way. Yeah, I can only imagine how tough that was, you know. It's hard enough to try to implement tech and, you know, educate players that might not have, you know, exposure to that. And then to throw like a language barrier in on that, I can only imagine, you know, how tough that was. So what what was an example of just kind of like you, you mentioned, you know, using pitching machines and having blast on there. So what I mean. Tell me about just kind of like your experience of, of what you did, just trying to get like basic concepts to, to those guys. Definitely. I mean, education was a, was a focus that we had with these kids. You know, we would have classroom settings where we'd bring them in and um, we would have to tell them what we're doing with them. You know, for a sense of buy-in, there has to be a sense of ownership of what what's going on and the ownership also comes with understanding what's going on with with the player and what we're trying to do um, so we would start off with classroom settings describing what was going on how this thing can benefit them and what it means to them and once we established that and they understood what was going on they were learning the process along with us and having that connection and open dialect was really really crucial um, for them to have that buy-in with the technology and understanding that the machine's okay to hit off of or that it's okay to have a bad sensor on your bat or that it's okay that there's, you know, numbers being thrown out about how hard you hit a ball. Um, and it's very, very simple and uh, granular stuff, but these small aspects will have a outstanding effect on their development as they continue through, the, um, through their playing career and um, onward in their, in their professional baseball ambition. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I mean, 
we've talked about it a little bit just between me and you just about that experience and um i appreciate you just kind of shedding a little light on that um for the listeners of the podcast but i'd also um obviously you know when you compare that to you know your work at arkansas you know there's not a language barrier you're around you know players that typically have been exposed to technology they're a little more up to speed maybe not you know some more than others but talk about the difference between you know how you implement technology with with guys at arkansas and just kind of how that looks like definitely uh i think the the best way to implement technology is you have to understand it, but you also have to understand where you're at. And you brought up a good point. There's two different athletes that you had or that I've had in the previous five months where you have a 16 year old with not a lot of English and from a, from a different country. And you have a 20 year old that's been in the program for two years that has been kind of exposed to technology. Um, And I think the best way to implement it is to really understand where you're at and understand the technology that you're using and having that open communication with players. You know, nowadays, the the tech's all out there. You have TrackMan, you have Blast, you have Rapsodo, you have KVest, you have 4D, you even have Catapult and Force Place with some areas. And it's our job as coaches to understand what the tech does, what the data produces and what the data means and how the movement created the data. But all of this goes along with the athletes learning process as well and having guys that have been around the program for a couple of years or they have been exposed to technology. They're at different stages of the learning. And it's a very good comparison as coaches. Sometimes we're at different stages of our development personally when we're learning, gaining new information. and How can we connect those two together and understand what the athlete's wanting to do, what the coach is wanting to do? And when we can put the two together, it usually merits a good result. So Phil, I wanted to um, jump in and ask a couple of questions. What what is your role uh, at Arkansas right now? Um, and then secondarily, the follow up question would be: I I want to learn more about the tech that you're utilizing there, or that you've been exposed to. I mean, you mentioned some some cool ones like Catapult. Um, so I would just be kind of first interested to hear uh, kind of what your current role is, and then. Uh, the technologies uh, you've used or are currently using? Definitely. So my title is a graduate manager at the University of Arkansas. So it's a it's a different type of role where I'm more of a support staff to our coaches and to our uh, personnel staff on uh, within our program. So I kind of have a very uh, broad title where I kind of have my hand in everything from the data and analytics from our um, track man, trying to process our information there, um, from our blast, from our Rapsodo, um, using all of our technology to support our coaches and what they're wanting to accomplish with our players. Um, so that would be kind of a general idea of the role that I'm in right now. Um, and some of the technologies that we are using, we're using TrackMan, to track in-game um, metrics and kind of using our own data software to uh, evaluate our players and their in-game performance and kind of describe a performance metric for each guy. Um, we're using Blast. We're tracking every single swing that um, our hitters are taking throughout the year, trying to, you know, measure what's going on in the swing. How can we develop a swing, maybe an umbrella to put a guy under or how to progress his development. Uh, we use Rapsodo. You know, Rapsodo is a new uh, technology that we've actually just got. Um, and we're using it strictly in this moment for a feedback loop, kind of just letting the guys understand what's going on, 
seeing their exit velocity, seeing their launch angle in a given setting. Um, and previous, you know, I've had experience with catapult and force plates um, and tr- trying to ch- bridge the gap between the strength and conditioning aspect to the hitting or the pitching aspect and how workload manages our actual mo- movement skill and motor patterns throughout a duration of a fall or throughout the duration of a season. So where did you end up uh, utilizing that? Was that with the Indians or a previous uh, coaching position you were at? That was with the Indians. Okay, cool. I mean, cause those, those two things there also kind of play into my world, like the strength and conditioning side. And I think we talked a little bit on one of our other podcasts about workload. Um, were there any kind of things that stood out to you from either that or any of the other data that you've gotten to look at? Yeah, definitely. And, and from a, from a blast standpoint, it's been cool with where we're at now trying to tie in the two together. Um, with the sense of volume control and how guys movements over the duration of swing, kind of the setting that they're in. Um, you know, t- I think one of the important aspects of blast that has to be the best way to utilize it is adding context to each swing. Each swing has a different environment. Each swing has a different setting that it's in. Um, and tracking that over time and seeing where a guy's, you know, bat speed or rotation is either in- increasing or decreasing given the setting or given the number of the swing on a day is very, very important, very insightful to know, okay, maybe, maybe Brett doesn't need to hit 50 times. Maybe he needs to hit a hundred or maybe this day he's, he's hit 150 or this time of the year he's hit, he needs to hit this amount. Um, and kind of monitoring that over time and obviously collecting the more data is going to lead to better decisions in the future. Um, but that's kind of where our focus is at right now with blast. So are you taking, uh, the different, uh swings like say for example this swing these swings were taken off front toss these swings were taken off bp these are live etc yes you, we're adding context to each swing and trying to find out or put a label to where the swing was taken at mm-hmm. are you because i'm trying to think of like how we're using it and i i'm not actually actively engaged with that component of what we're doing so are you is this done live or post like post this is done post okay how are you able to discern if you did multiple different things uh within a session how are you able to discern when you switched um or do you kind of have an idea based upon the rep range that you you gave guys there's a setting Uh, on the rep right there is a setting but with the amount of guys that we have going on it's it's been better for us to kind of have a rep range and have a setting range and kind of tie it into our timestamps post, uh, post processing, um, oh, okay. with the data and trying to tag it that way, um, has been the, has been the route that we've taken. Mm-hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Cool. Yeah. That's, uh, I know that's something that, that we've talked about, um, previously on the podcast is, is looking at the difference in, in each environment from a guy's blast metrics, not only just to see kind of how, you know, the players are adapting to the environments, but really as a way um, to analyze the environments and how representative and how good of a training environment it is, which is something that Garrett brought up in the past that I thought was really brilliant. That was something that I didn't look at. So that's, and you know, that's kind of the whole MO of this pod is how, how we can, you know, look at the environments and skill acquisition, motor learning, so if you can just kind of talk about 
you know, what those environments are um, and kind of how you combine the two is like, you know, how you let one influence the other. And I think Garrett wants to hop in before you answer. Uh, And then also too, with that, have you noticed any difference of the blast metrics between uh, different settings, whether it's front toss, machine, live, et cetera? Yeah, there's definitely differences in each setting. Um, you know, the incoming pitch kind of has a has a, a definite impact on that. You know, sometimes there's not enough, there's not a moving ball, for example, T. Mm-hmm. Um, and front flips, there's a little bit of an arc into a pitch. Um, so the metrics will definitely change by each realm. Um, and one of the areas that we've definitely utilized blast in terms of changing the environment is we want to either validate our decision um, or hope that our desired metric to increase is improving. So, Phil, just talk about um, the training environments that you like to cultivate um, and how you would let data maybe influence how you would create a specific practice design. And um, to piggyback off what Garrett said, what are some things that you've noticed um, from BLAST specifically about the different environments? Definitely. Uh, environment training is, is a cool topic, uh, especially in baseball, because it's very unique. Um, it's always important to remember the pitcher and hitter dynamic, that there is really only so much space for the hitter to work with and the pitcher to work with for that regard. Uh, for the pitcher, for example, he has a mound and he has interaction with the rubber and a target that he's working towards to throw a desired outcome. Whereas the hitter who's in a box working in a small area called the strike zone, he has to react, perceive, and coordinate. At first, he has to make a decision to swing, and then he has to perceive and coordinate an action for contact. Um, and I think a general rule of thumb to keep in mind with all this is inform- the, the environments that we create and that we put on our athletes is that we want to keep the specific outcome very sacred. Um, it has to be constant in any environment you create. It has to be understood and carried out by the athlete. Um, and kind of going on to the environment aspect of things and how to use data to back it. For example, in, in baseball, we have very generic environments, T flips, maybe some offset BP, BP and machines. Okay. And each, each area has its different adherent strengths and adherent weaknesses, whereas an athlete might be working on something and the the difficulty of the task might need to be very, very small. On the other end of the spectrum, you might want the desired or the desired difficulty to be a little bit higher. You want it to be more game-like. You want to increase um, point of contact for hitter. You want to increase his impact in the zone for hitter and so on and so on. And you can kind of couple these blast metrics together and kind of validate each drill for a desired outcome. For example, if you want a guy to really, really hone in on his connection, you know, let's put him in a very, very simple T or flip setting where he's feeling his posture, he's feeling his body tilt, he's feeling his, you know, vertical bat angle through the duration of the swing. And we can validate that with blast. We can take a swing, check the metric and move on and go through the system. Now, for example, if you want a guy to really amp up his sequence, you really want his rotational acceleration scores. Maybe you're using a constraint with a belt or a weighted bat, et cetera, to try to get the rotation up. Rotation is going to move up as the ball is picking up speed. The athlete realizes that there's less time to create a certain skill and get the desired, get the swing off. 
Um, and so you might see an uptick in rotation. And so it's kind of these different areas that you kind of, you can't put a metric under umbrella because each metric affects one another in a certain way and they don't affect together on a single platform. And so I think it's really important to remember that as you create these environments and you validate them with Blast is that no metric can be viewed from under a certain umbrella. It's all universal and they can kind of couple together to get the outcome as a coach and as a player as you want. And finally, I think something to touch on for, for difficulty of environment is some athletes can't do certain movements. They can't perform certain outcomes in an environment. And I think a really keen thing that has been kind of out of blown lately is we're putting these athletes in really challenging, really dynamic environments where they can't perform the, the, the sacred outcome. If we can't make contact, if we can't impact the ball well in a certain outcome, then, then why are we doing this environment? It's not, it's not helping him. It's hurting him. It's hurting his morale. It's hurting his confidence and everything's going out the window as soon as he fails and fails and fails over and over again. So I think marginal difficulty in environment has a lot of benefits, keeping the athlete within range of his ability and incrementally increasing his ability in a small progressive way. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, kind of what you were saying about looking at, a metric in its, you know, the context of it in its entirety and then having that shape kind of the environment or, you know, I, I really think that's uh, very wise and like a really smart way to approach it because like you said, like um, you may, you may increase a hitter's, you know, acceleration, um, but you also got to check, you know, that the rest of the metrics aren't being negatively effective. You know, if he's, he's accelerating faster, but he's also in turn, uh, you know, it boosted his attack angle like too high to where that he's, you know, he's coming out of the zone too quick. So just being able, like you said, couple metrics together to make sure that, um, you know, you're still getting the desired result, I think is, is really smart. And uh, Garrett, I, I think there were some things that, maybe you were looking to note as well? Um, I guess what I'm curious about is how much are you looking at uh, more representative data and comparing that to uh, some of your like different practice settings? So like looking at how does the lower intensity stuff, maybe T or flips, if they're working on connection or sequence, how are you checking to see if it translates to um, essentially to the game or to a more game-like setting. Definitely. I think another important aspect on that question is what does the athlete feel and what does the athlete enjoy? Um, And so, you know, there might be a guy that comes into a cage and he really loves hitting off the tee, right? We all have those guys. Or he really loves hitting off flips and maybe his metrics aren't good in those settings, but he goes out into the game and he proceeds to go three for three and hits, you know, two doubles and a home run. So why would we constrict a player from doing what he makes feel good, what feels good to him to the result in the game? This leads me to another question to kind of go off of what you just said of how much, how much does like the, does belief, a player's belief. And I, I attribute it to the placebo effect. You know, how much more does that, their mental state like play in, to um their success over like sort of like having the athlete do what we think is mechanically best or 
um, even from like a practice design standpoint, uh, you know, practicing in a more representative task environment, um, how much more is it the person's like feelings and belief about something? Like how, how much, how important are those two things? Like if, if you had to pick one over the other, like which one do you think wins out as being the most effective um, or most impactful to an athlete's performance? It's a great question. I think it's def it's always about the athlete and it has to be, these guys are the closest thing to the game. They are the game. Um, and so it always has to be about what the player's feeling, what the player perceives and what the player is doing um, in order to get transfer first and foremost, and to order to get results, either that be him doing the right thing or him doing the wrong thing in your eyes. It's always got to be about what he feels is right. Um, and, and there's a fine line to all this information to action. And it's something that's an everyday occurrence and it's a balancing act every day. I think the best coaches have always found that bliss point of translating information to action and translating what they want in order to see the player plant the seed in the player's head for, for personal development and personal skill development. And I think one thing that's very interesting is, is a lot of this is still a guess, or this is something maybe I live by more than other coaches. A lot of this is a guess and it's a very ambitious statement, um, but there's no direct path to player development. It's incredibly hard. And a lot of what us coaches do, and especially in this technology age with, resources from you know we can track almost anything now it's it's a guess uh, there's still a lot that we don't know um, and there's a lot of work ahead of us in order to find a true actual path to better player development and it's different for each guy and we have to find one thing for each guy to work on and if we can do that day after day after day we usually end up getting a better result um, for the player and on the field for our team I think you hit on like a good point that maybe we've talked about on the podcast before Brock of like coaches or even players looking for silver bullets you know as far as like just this one thing is going to make me better and really it's like a culmination of different stuff and it's just the the development process is complex it's not linear um, and there's just a lot more that goes into it than just one thing sometimes yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, like you said, it's a fine line and, and that's really, you know, I think one thing that I mentioned, um, on this podcast is kind of what, what is the art of coaching really? Like, what does that mean? And, and you talked about, you know, creating environments that are, you know, challenging, but they're not too far out of reach to where, you know, the player can't even get attuned to the information because he, you know the feedback is just so far away um so you know like you said the art of coaching is understanding how far to a player can reach for each um environment or for each task and kind of like what you were saying like the art of coaching is knowing how much stuff that we're going to give a guy that's placebo and maybe we 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 have an opinion about how much transfer there is but you know, if he likes that certain um, element of practice or, or whatever the case may be, that we know that it's good for him. But on the, you know, devil's advocate side of that, I'm always thinking, okay, but we know that what he's doing isn't good, but it, it feels good. 
but how much better could he be if we actually introduced him to an environment where he was challenged a little bit more? And so it's kind of like you said, like that's the art of coaching. And, you know, I know it's something that Phil, that you're very focused on is, is buy-in and having a relationship to the players. And, and that's, that's got to come first. Um, if you're going to actually introduce players into environments that we truly believe will make them better. So um, go ahead and talk a little bit about that as far as like, you know, building trust and, and, and everything that goes with that, the art of coaching, so to speak. Definitely. I think that the, the word coaching should be eradicated, to be quite honest. Um, I think the word coach, first and foremost, establishes an ego and a dominance over a player. Um, and so personally, I think the word coach is, is non-existent in my dictionary. I would rather be known as a coworker or a friend to, to a player. Um, and you can say that there's an argument of respect or hierarchy. And sure, there is. There's a place and time for everything. But at the end of the day, player development, if you really think of player development, we're trying to make these guys better. And we're doing this for a team goal or for an organization goal. Um, and so more or less, we're their coworker. We're, we're working side by side with these guys, trying to get the best out of them. And they're going to make us better in turn for, for a huge goal ahead of us. Um, and so I think that getting buy-in first and foremost is an individual thing. Um, you have to be able to present information in a humble and, you know, very, honest and direct way um you know the placebo effect can um you know like you got you kind of touched on it a little bit is is detrimental to some people um because it's not truthful and it's you know it's just a it's something that you want to prescribe for for a um mental gain or for a mental trick and i think whenever you find a honest and open communication first with a player you eradicate ego you get down on their level. You're in the trenches with them, so to say. You're in there every single day. Um, I think the buy-in is very, very quick and a lot quicker than people think. Um, but for some people, it's it's getting over that hump of let's get on their level and let's that's work awesome. side by I side the, to one, make it better. You know, that's a hot take, I think, for maybe a lot of people that are in kind of the field that we're in, you know, to eradicate the word coach. Um but I love that. I mean, I, and I feel the same way as far as like, you know, building trust and getting buy-in. I mean, the word, anytime someone calls me coach, it's just, it's weird to me. And, you know, I kind of cringe a little bit. I'm like, oh, don't, don't call me coach. Just, just call me Brock. <laughs> but I, I think your, you know, your approach to that and the relationship with the players will, will take you a long way. And I think that, um, you know, it's, not something that we typically talk about, I think, on the podcast, but I think it's something that is extremely valuable as far as getting the most out of players um, and, and something that a lot of people could benefit from. So definitely appreciate your perspective there. No, and I, I really like it too in terms of there needs to be more of a reciprocal relationship in, in terms of communication and trying to be more on their level and to have – lines of communication that go both ways and that things are not just rhetorical. Um, but on the, on the flip side, and this is more where I'd like to get your thoughts, Phil, when I actually learned like kind of where the word coach came from, it's like, it's more talking about like a, uh, like a stagecoach, like 
that's that's my understanding of like why that was used was the coach was supposed to help an athlete get from one place to another and i think you know how the term is used currently um or how people think of think about a coach like i am in definite agreement like there needs to be a shift in terms of uh you know how we think about what our role is um with a player and uh you know i'm all for kind of changing you know like what our title is mine i really like uh facilitator of skill attunement like I, my job is to be a facilitator um i'm not it's not about me i'm here to facilitate an environment that helps you get to where you need to go um but i'm curious kind of your uh if you have any thoughts or feedback on that yeah i mean i think it's you know i didn't know the coach the definition was was that of a stage coach um, I think in today's age, um, you know, we've we've kind of given notions or uh, certain vibes or certain thoughts to a certain word. We attach different emotions to certain words. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's where I'm coming from. And that is is we need to get rid of this ego of we're telling athletes what to do. We're creating these practices we're creating this stuff for them what we think it's better and whenever we can get to their level um and maybe bring them bridge the gap from this to that um you know that, that's probably a better route i don't know if any of that makes any sense no yeah. totally only garrett would pull out the receipts and like actually educate us on where the term coach came from <laughs> and it being only only garrett would be able to do that Fair enough. Uh, I love it, man. I guess maybe one final, I guess, area or topic, um, that I'd like to get your opinion on Phil is is where do you currently see a disconnect between you know data and technology and like training environments slash player development um, if you see one and and kind of like what are some just kind of ideas or or wild theories that that you have of how you know those two might be better connected uh, we touched on it earlier a little bit. I think one of the biggest disconnects right now is there is a crowd that believes there is a way. Um, there's a crowd mm. that doesn't believe there's a way. And I think there's a crowd that's kind of in the middle and they'll believe whatever helps them out. Um, you know, too many times that, you know, we get caught in the moment of we want to find out what's the next best thing. or We want to find out the next, next best thing. And we forget what's going on in the actual moment. And we forget to work on and worry about what's consuming our moment at today. Um, I think that's probably the biggest disconnect is or one of the biggest disconnects um, in today's player development era, baseball era. Um, and I think the next biggest connect or the biggest disconnect um, in the frontier moving forward is, is the incoming pitch, the batted ball, the body and the outgoing ball relationship. Um, I think that's the next frontier. That's the disconnect right now that we don't have. Um, and we're trying to figure out how to put all of this day together to get a better understanding of what's going on. When the pitch is thrown, the batter chooses to make a decision to swing. He makes a movement and the bat moves and the outcoming batted ball 
where's the information lying there and what can we find out from that relationship to hopefully develop our athletes a little bit better in hitting or in baseball. Yeah. And you're definitely right. And it seems to be like right now where we kind of have an idea of, you know, what's a good technology to measure each of those individual facets, but, you know, getting the full picture is, you know, something that at least publicly, I don't think anyone's really got um, a whole lot of information on combining all of those, you know, data sources, like you're saying, but I think, I think we're getting closer. Um, there's obviously been some studies um, that have coupled, you know, t- at least two of those together with, um, you know, I've seen driveline has done studies pairing blast and um, hit tracks. And I know they've done it um, with, blast and KVS as well and I think they're trying to do some stuff on um, eye gaze and combining all that but like you said um, we'll get some some real answers once uh, we're able to kind of I guess put all of that in one place or one from one medium to finally get some real concrete stuff so I uh, I couldn't agree more Garrett any thoughts on that no I mean this was all good stuff I guess um do you have any other questions that you wanted to, or other topics that you wanted to cover? Um, yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I've enjoyed from other people's podcasts when they have people on is just ask them about um, any particular resource that they f- feel like strongly enough to plug to other people um, that's helped you in your de- personal development. Um, I don't want to say as a coach or as an analyst, but as a, uh, as whatever you are, um, as a as a baseball dude, so if there's as any a human being, yeah, if there's any just like particular resources or books that you found particularly helpful for other people that are listening, go ahead and just uh, talk about those. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd be I, I'd feel bad if I didn't talk about the the one exper- the one thing I think helps out a lot is just experience. Um, as we go through this in our careers, you know, the broadness of our experience and diving into different areas can only help your perspective and um, how you operate and how you interact with one another. Um, so experience is a very broad term, um, but I think it's something that's very, very insightful. Um, a resource that I've used and I've tried to learn from other people's experiences and how to intertwine those two and use them as a learning point. Um, Twitter's a great resource. Um, you know, there's not a lot of going on on there anymore. I st- I'm still on it every single day. Probably by fault, probably a little too much. Um, not very active on it, um, but I do, I do like to look at it. Um, and, and reading, um, reading is a very big passion of mine. Um, I try to read stuff that doesn't relate to baseball. Um, anything from, books on you know learning to super athletes to habit making to um, autobiographies um, have been really really insightful for me as resources Um, and finally you know you can you can find a lot of baseball information out there um, from from driveline does a phenomenal job Um, podcasts ahead of the curve listen to that quite frequently and um, just any, any online resource that has to do with baseball, I usually, uh, take a dabble into and, and try to learn something from it if I can. Um, is what is for people who are wanting to be a baseball coach, like 
Can you kind of describe like the path, like, or the different paths? Um, but I think what may put this in context and to also help the listeners get to know you more, what, what is your long-term goal? Like, um, where would you like to be as a coach? So last question first, where I'd like to be as a coach, I don't have the answer. Um, you know, I, I think working in the moment is, is very crucial and can kind of, whenever you goal set, it takes away from what you're doing at the moment. Um, and so my goal, my long-term goal is to be really, really good where I'm at for as long as I'm at. Um, and how to get into baseball. I think the best way to get into baseball is be around it. Um, and if, and if you take that same principle of just working really, really hard and having an interest in whatever job you're given, be the best video coordinator you can ever be, be the best laundry manager you can ever be, be the CEO of your job. And eventually you're going to be asked for more responsibilities and you're going to turn into the job that you move forward to and that you actually find your path or you find your path through that route. Well, Phil, um, where can people uh, kind of connect with you? And uh, if they want to, you know, find out more about what you're up to, uh, where should they, uh, how should they connect with you? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Philip Sebahar, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-C-E-B-U-H-A-R. Um, you can connect with me there. Um, and if you want to reach me by email, you can, uh, P-M-C-E-B-U-H-A at uark.edu. I uh, would love to talk to anybody. Um, I love chatting with guys, uh, different people from different resources or from different experiences. Um, and if they want to reach out to me, uh, I'd love to hear from me and love to chat it up with you guys. Awesome. Well, Phil, thanks for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate having you. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. Enjoyed it. Awesome. All right. Till next time, everybody. Yeah.